to have everybody here with us, and I want to welcome those who are joining us online as well. Uh, go ahead and leave a comment, or a, if you've got a question, or there's a way we can pray for you, go ahead and leave that in the comment section. Uh, we would love to, to help you in that way. Well, I have one extra announcement I want to add, and I told AJ, I said, I'll just take care of this one. Um, some of you saw on Facebook a few weeks ago, I posted a video saying, hey, um, if you've got a theological question you've always wondered about, maybe it's a question about culture or uh, something that you just, about God or his, his word or his world, and you just wanted to know about it, maybe it's a hard question, maybe it's just something you've never heard explained by a pastor before, uh, that if you will send that to me, I am planning to make a series of videos to go online to help out with that. Because I wanted to figure out some way that I could address those things that people have always wondered about and do so in a way that other people could benefit from them as well. So you can always write those questions on a piece of paper and give them to me. Or if you want to be anonymous, you can slip them and drop them on my desk on Sunday or slip them under the door of the office. Um, or you can email me, calcallison at gmail.com. Or you can send me a private message through Facebook, through either my personal page or the church page. It'll get to me as well. Uh, or, I mean, smoke signals and carrier pigeons are okay too. I don't know about if I can understand what the pigeon is saying, but that probably doesn't work like Lassie. Anyway, um, it was a dumb joke. You don't have to laugh. Hey, uh, go ahead if you've got your Bibles or a device to look up Scripture and open to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be in verse 31 through 32. I just want to begin by reading this this morning, and then we're going to pray together, and then we're going to dive right in. Beginning in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, uh, as we come to this passage, uh, we acknowledge that it's hard. Uh, it's hard for us to hear. It's hard for us to um, understand what we need to do with that. Um, God, I pray that you would just open our hearts. Help us not make it more difficult than it really is. Help us not get weird with it. Um, God, help us understand what you're saying. Um, help us understand your heart uh, for marriage uh, in this issue of divorce and remarriage. Help us understand this isn't everything you've spoken on the subject either, um, but that, God, you would just make us people who are more and more reliant on you for um, for our hearts to be softened to you and to one another, for godly marriages, and for healing uh, when we have sinned and, and broken our covenants. Uh, God, I pray that, that as I speak on this this morning, that um, people would not hear judgment or condemnation only, God, but that they would hear uh, your um, good news of having... Uh, taken that judgment, taken that condemnation, uh, taken the wrath of God meant for them um, on, upon yourself on the cross, Jesus. And help us know what it means to uh, live out uh, with, a, with a new view of the sanctity of marriage uh, from here on out, God. Father, I pray as I speak that you would um, you'd just help me be very clear in my words, uh, God, that your love would flow through me, and God, that we would... Um, be closer to you when we leave here than when we came in. And Father, I pray that uh, you would just 
you would increase and I would decrease. That anything that's just of me, you would just, just push it down and out and that you would shine through, Jesus. Be big, Jesus, and it's in your name I pray. Amen. I heard a story about two men who went to prison. I know that sounds like a weird way to start out this sermon on this passage, but I heard a story about two men who went to prison at the same time. Now, one of these guys was a murderer, and the other was in prison for embezzling money. And while they were in prison, both of them became Christians. They became Christ followers. Now, the embezzler's wife didn't want to be married anymore, so they got divorced while he was in prison. And the two men got out at the same time, and they joined the same Baptist church. Well, two years later, both of them were nominated to be deacons. The church voted, and, and they accepted the murderer, but they turned down the embezzler on the basis of his divorce. So one night later, they were sitting and having dinner together, and the guy who was the new deacon said to his friend, Sam, if you'd killed her, you'd be a deacon now. We get weird with this stuff, guys. Sometimes we go weird. This is a hard text. There's no way around it. This is a difficult text. We are in a a series through the Sermon on the Mount, through Matthew 5 through 7, where Jesus is giving really his most well-known block of teaching in Scripture. And we come to some passages that are hard. We had one last week, and I was quarantined, so you saw me on video. And if you missed that, you can hear the audio on our podcast feed and go back and re-listen to that. Um, it's much better to talk to you in person than to a camera and a desk lamp in my face. I will tell you that. But anyway, this is a difficult, hard text. So let's make a commitment not to get weird with each other about it. We have to be careful, though, not to make Scripture, especially when it's something hard, we have to be careful not to make Scripture say something it doesn't or to dismiss it as unimportant. I think there's two ditches we can fall into on either side of the road. We can either make it say something it doesn't and or dismiss it as if it's not important. Don't make God's commandments say something they don't because that is dangerous. And I want to encourage you as you read through the scripture, don't run away from hard texts. When we come to a hard passage, we need to soak in them and let them do their work in us. You know, when we come to hard texts, it's kind of like the guy who was... He'd fallen off a cliff, and he's hanging by a branch off the side of the cliff, you know, and uh, he's not sure how he's going to get out without dying. He's going to fall to his death, and so he prays, and he looks up to heaven, and he says, God, please save me, and he hears a voice from heaven that says, okay, let go of the branch, and he says, is there anyone else up there? And that's how sometimes we treat hard texts. We come to them, we read something, we're like, this is hard. This says something difficult, or this says something that I don't understand. And so we're like, is there anybody else up there? And can I get a different message? We can't, but we should not treat them like that. Hard texts are hard, and they make us wince because they say something or how they talk about our sin. It's good that they make us wince. They're good for this reason because they push us toward Jesus. They push, push us towards trusting in Jesus. The guy on the branch, if he'd let go and trusted God, okay, I know it's an illustration, right? But he would have been pushed towards trusting that God was going to take care of him. And so when we encounter a hard passage, something difficult, and they're all over the Bible, by the way, we've got to let them push us towards Jesus. 
Divorce is a difficult subject to preach on. There's a variety of reasons for that. So I'm going to describe a few of those reasons why it might be difficult for you to sit and hear it or why it may be difficult for someone to speak on it. First is, there's always a chance that someone in the audience has gone through or is currently going through a divorce and is still very emotionally raw, and it's hard for them to hear this message while they're still like an exposed nerve. It's like, almost feels like salt in the wound. But I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. Two things. You are forgiven and God starts where you are. He doesn't start back here. He doesn't start up here. He starts where you're at. Secondly, there may be those here who are divorced but didn't want it. And now they find themselves second-guessing themselves, doubting themselves, thinking about all the things they could have done. That makes this message hard to hear. Third, there may be people who are present who had no biblical grounds for divorce, and they, but, or excuse me, who had biblical grounds, sorry, had biblical grounds for divorce, and they only reluctantly pursued it, and they're still troubled and disappointed, and they're mourning the end of their dream. There may be those here whose marriage is teetering on the edge. You're all out of answers and energy, and your spouse has already given up. To them, this message may sound like announcing their doom, but please stick with us. Stick with the passage. Stick with me on this. There may be some here who are unbiblically divorced and are so defensive about it that they've never come to grips with their own sin. There may be some who are maybe watching online and saw the title of the message who are wanting to get a divorce or thinking about divorce, and they're hoping that I will give them permission in this message. They're looking for someone to confirm what you in your heart want to do, and I'm not going to do that today. There are some who sit and, and listen who may think that biblical teaching on divorce is unrealistic or it's out of touch for today's culture. We're in 2021, man. Maybe some have friends or family who are divorced or going through a divorce currently, and it's hard for them to think about this subject. It hurts. There are those who are deeply concerned about the marriages in our church and are frustrated that more isn't done about it. They're worried about the effects on children and grandchildren in these families that are so hurting and confused. It's hard for me because my parents are divorced, and I've been personally affected by it. So while it's truly difficult to talk about divorce, we must talk about it because Jesus talked about it. Part of why I primarily preach expositional sermons the way I do through books of the Bible or through large sections as we're doing with the Sermon on the Mount is because it forces us to address topics that we might otherwise avoid or that are hard to think about or really hard to study and figure out how to present to the body of Christ. But my hope is that what you hear today is love in the midst of seriousness. So let's, let's, let's look at what's going on in this passage. Okay. Now remember, we have just come through a section on lust and adultery. And to put it in context, the, the next verses are on oath-keeping and oath-taking. Okay, just to keep it within the bounds of what all he's talking about. 
And remember, several verses earlier, Jesus had said that in order to be in the kingdom, their righteousness had to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So these religious teachers, these religious uh, law keepers, all right? So Jesus here is raising a challenge to the way that the rabbis had handled Deuteronomy 24.1. Now that verse, so this is back in the Old Testament as the law was given, said, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. Here's the thing. So that's what he's referring to, is the way that they had rendered this or the way they had uh, interpreted this. They distorted the original meaning of that section in the following verses. Here's why. So there were in Jewish culture, okay, Jewish religious culture, there were two schools of thought from these two different schools of rabbis, okay? So there was one school of rabbinic thought that was very serious on the subject of divorce and believed that you could only have a divorce if adultery had occurred, which seems to be what Jesus is also saying he would agree with, right? So that was one school of, of these rabbis or Jewish teachers. The second school or the second line of thought of these is that said that if you want one, if you want a divorce, get one and enjoy it. So if you, they had boiled it down. So this seems very serious when you read scripture, but they had boiled it down. They could think of many different reasons to be able to get a divorce. So fellas, if you came home and your food was spoiled that your wife served you, you could say, I divorce you. They got it down to where if she wasn't looking so hot anymore, which is ridiculous, right? Okay, I saw, this is a complete aside. I saw this clip of a pastor this week who was just trashing on women during his sermon saying they had to look hot and be skinny and all this stuff. And this guy was fat like me. It was ridiculous and misogynistic and terrible. Anyway, sorry, I didn't go off on that. But these guys decided if they came home and their wife wasn't looking as trim anymore, I'd divorce you. You're not pleasing to me. They, any little thing they could find, they could divorce her. And in that time, that put the wife in great danger. Because, see, the woman... She was, she was, it was like she was owned. She didn't have the ability to go out and work and, and, you know, own property. And it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like single working woman, okay? Uh, it's not 2021. She needed that husband for protection and for provision, and she would be unable to get that. So she might end up in being, like, given to some man as his, have to give herself to some man as his mistress in order to eat. Or she may be pushed into prostitution, But Jesus did not give the same kind of exclusions as these rabbis. He held true to the heart and spirit of the law, which he was the fulfillment of. Now, some things we need to, before we get into to eight truths I'm going to give you about this, we need to understand a couple of things. One, most marriages uh, don't start with a blowout. It's a slow leak, okay? You know when you're driving your car down the road and all of a sudden you have a blowout and you're stuck on the side of the road? That's a whole lot different than if you've got a slow leak and you come out in the morning, you're like, wow, look, my tire's low. And you go air it up. And then you come out of work later that night and you're like, oh man, tire's low again. It's a slow leak. 
Oftentimes you don't notice it at first. So most marriages don't have a total blowout and go from happy marriage to divorce. Also, I want to remind you, let's, let's not let the commands of God say something they don't that keeps us from running to him. Let's look at the commands of God and let the commands of God help us run to Jesus. Let them push us to Jesus. So here are eight truths that we know from Scripture regarding marriage and divorce. And then I'm going to, at the end, after we go through all these, I'm going to tell you about the gospel and why there is hope, uh, even if you find yourself in one of these situations. So there's eight truths that we know from Scripture regarding marriage and divorce. Number one, God designed marriage as one man and one woman for life. Okay, one man, one woman for life. Our culture has a real issue with that statement. They want it to be lots of other things, but marriage is of divine origin. It was instituted by God. You can go back and read Genesis 1 and 2 and find out how God created man and woman, and he instituted marriage as that relationship between one man and one woman till death do them part. Because God has ordained marriage and created marriage, only he has the right to end it, to end marriage. Uh, There is a longer teaching of Jesus. If you flip over a few pages to Matthew chapter 19, in Matthew chapter 19, he actually addresses this topic of divorce uh, even more fully because of questions he had been getting. And so we're going to be in Matthew 19, and I'm going to read verses uh, 3 through, let's go through 9. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his wife and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? I want to stop right there. Do you see that they took it as a command, right? We're going to come back to that in a minute. But they said, Uh, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Don Carson, as he's summarizing this teaching in Matthew 19, 3, and and following verses, he says this. Jesus goes back to first principles. In the beginning, God made one man and one woman, and they were joined together. Initially, initially, at the very beginning, all divorce was completely inconceivable. When God made men and women, there was no allowance made for it. And we read in Malachi 2.16 that God, in fact, hates divorce. So that's number one. God designed marriage as one man and one woman for life. That is God's plan. That is God's design for the way marriage was created. Number two, sexual immorality constitutes biblical grounds for divorce. Sexual immorality constitutes biblical ground for divorce. I want you to understand, if you want to know, if you're wondering, Mal, I wonder what Pastor Cal thinks 
about divorce and, and, and is it biblical? Is it allowable? Here's what I would say. Divorce is almost always wrong. It's almost always the wrong answer. Almost always. Jesus did give here what we have as the one exception. There's a possible um, Pauline exception that we're not going to go over today that Paul gives as well. But sexual immorality constitutes biblical grounds for divorce. Now, the word that is translated sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea. Pornea. And you might have guessed that is where the word pornography comes from. This is sex with someone you aren't married to. And it can cover a variety of sexual contacts and sexual contexts with people who you are not married to. So what Jesus is saying, sexual immorality, or excuse me, sexual immorality would be the one exception he would say for, uh, for divorce. Number three, divorce and remarriage without biblical grounds constitutes adultery. Divorce and remarriage without biblical grounds, so if they didn't have the grounds the Bible lays out, that Jesus lays out for divorce, then a remarriage would constitute adultery. First of all, uh, the spouse who is initiating the divorce uh, is potentially pushing that other spouse into adultery if they go out and get remarried. And it's pretty clear here. Now, let's let it, let's let it soak in, and if it, went, if, if it causes us to wince, that's good. Okay? But except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So it is adultery if, if you have an illegitimate divorce and you remarry, then it is considered adultery. And there are no exceptions. You know, Jesus flat out says this with no exceptions because he says everyone, right? But then, or he says whoever, right? Whoever, that's all-encompassing. And then he gives the one exception, okay? Except. Number four, the Old Testament law on divorce was designed to protect the woman from frivolous divorce and character assassination. So it was allowable, allowable, because of the hardness of the hearts of the people. The woman would need a husband to survive, to uh, keep her out of potentially prostitution and, or, or some type of, of other immorality in order to just make it through in their culture. And so Jesus tells them that Moses allowed it. I, I really think they were taking some of it now, now, I think they were taking some of it on the fact that, well, Moses, because they said Moses commanded it, and again, we're going to come back to that in a minute, but, uh, but I think they may have been taking it as like, oh no, she didn't please me, so I have to divorce her. N- no, that, that's not at all. See, here we come to something we've talked about for a few weeks now, that the scribes and the Pharisees, these very religious, legalistic people, completely misunderstood the heart and the spirit of the law. They understood that where the, the sin in their life was coming from was not just what they were doing. It was their very nature. It was what was on their heart. And they needed to be cleaned at a heart level. They needed to be forgiven and sanctified at a heart level, not just in their actions. Fifth, divorce permitted, excuse me, divorce was permitted in specific circumstances, but it was never commanded. It's not something that should ever be entered into or used with the excuse that God told you, okay? If you ever come to me 
and you say, God told me to do this thing, and it's a thing that expressly is called sin in Scripture, I'm going to tell you, no, he didn't. Okay? Just like we would if if there's anybody out there who claims to be a prophet, and they say, God told me this thing's going to happen, then that thing doesn't happen, they're a false prophet. Okay? It's not something we should ever be entered into lightly, obviously. Anyone who's been through a divorce will tell you they would not wish it on their worst enemy. Divorce is never commanded in Scripture. There is a difference between something being allowed and something commanded. Again, Moses allowed it because the the hearts of the people were hard. And to... I've been reading in the Old Testament. If you're going through the Bible chronologically, you've been reading in the Old Testament. You're in the, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books, and you're finding out just how hard the people's hearts were. And just the kind of stuff they would get up to, even after God just miraculously did something among them, and then they would go and do something against him completely, uh, something idolatrous because their hearts were hard. So the problem was, again, it wasn't an action problem. It was a heart problem. There's a difference between something being allowed and something being commanded. Number six, even if there's biblical grounds for divorce, God's desire is for reconciliation and restoration. See, here's the thing. Even if there's biblical grounds for it, there's sexual immorality, there's, you know, maybe the Pauline exception from later in Scripture, God's desire is still for reconciliation and restoration of the relationship. Why is that? Because God, he's not after a piece of paper. He's not after a marriage certificate. He's not after your reputation. What he's after is your heart. And God is after the hearts of the people in the marriage. God is after the hearts of the people in the hard marriage. Even the allowable excuses should not be used as a ripcord. Well, I'm, I'm in a terrible, I'm in a terrible, you know, I'm miserable. Well, we kind of have this. It's kind of biblically, so we pull the ripcord. That's not supposed to be the first option. Number seven, adulterers should repent and newly pursue God's standards of sanctity in marriage. I want to say this, uh, just so it's clear, I don't believe that if you're remarried, okay, I don't believe that if you're remarried that you're continually sinning in adultery without any way out. So hear that. Like, if you're divorced and you're remarried, every time you're with your spouse, I don't believe that you're sitting there in adultery without any way out. Because the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sin on our behalf, in our place, and offers us that forgiveness. If one or both of the parties from a marriage are remarried, they should remain in those marriages and not divorce their new spouse to reunite with their former spouse. Okay? So, again, don't make it say something it doesn't say. Let's not get crazy weird on this, okay? I mean, let's be weird enough to be different than the culture, but not different than the Bible. <laughs> so if you are remarried, 
you should remain in those marriages and live for the Lord within that marriage. See, here's the thing. When God meets someone where they are, he bids them to take up their cross and follow him from that point on. It's dying to our sin daily. From this moment on, we are to live a life of repentance, walking in submission, love, mercy, and forgiveness. So you sinned. You may say, Pastor, you're saying that I got divorced and I didn't have biblical cause and so I sinned. Yes. But that's not the end of your story. That's not the end of the story. Guess what? When I was a kid, I stole some stuff. I sinned. It wasn't the end of my story. It's not the end of your story either. It doesn't have to be the end of your story. From this moment on, we're to live a life of repentance, walking in submission, love, mercy, and forgiveness. So you sinned, sit there in it a minute, let it, let it hurt, wince at it, and then repent and go forth and don't do it anymore. So the situation you're in, stay in the situation you're in, repent and go forth. See, I'm going to talk in a minute about how Jesus talks to divorced people in Scripture because we actually have a record of that. Number eight, Jesus expects divorce to be the rare exception and not the rule within the community of faith. So when I say the community of faith, I'm talking about the church, specifically the local church here, okay? So when I talk about community of faith, hear me say the church. So divorce should be a rare exception, not the rule within the community of faith. In other words, our divorce rate amongst true believers and true followers in Christ should not be the same as the world, okay? And I don't believe it is, even though statistics would, would tell you that the same in the church and out of the church, it, it's actually, I, I believe amongst true believers, that's actually not the case. Our goal as church members is healthy marriages in our churches. We want marriages to be healthy and we want healthy marriages for others. Divorce should be far less common than it is in churches today. We've gotten pretty good about putting on our game face and going along with whatever reason someone has for divorcing their spouse, all the way up to justifying it to ourselves or to them in a way that Scripture or Jesus himself never did, and we can't do that. But if we want healthy churches, we must first look at the hardness of our own hearts toward the Lord and toward our spouse. If we want healthy marriages, we have to be willing to get into the mess of one another's lives and help out. So if you've ever been in the midst of trying to help someone who's having marriage trouble, it's messy. It's real messy. But as God's agents of reconciliation, of us being his ambassadors of the gospel, we need to be willing to get in the mess with people and help. And here's why our marriages are so critical within the body of believers, the community of faith, the church. Number eight, sorry, number nine. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. Look, I'm prone to forget this sometimes too. So if you're like, wow, yeah, I knew that, but I forgot. (laughs) Welcome. Ephesians 5, through 32 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Our marriages are a picture of the gospel of Christ and the church. We can't be frivolously throwing out uh, or endorsing them being broken up. We fight to see reconciliation because Jesus fought to see us reconciled to himself. See, it's a picture. And, and men, uh, this doesn't escape me. I know in that passage I read, it starts with wives submitting to your husbands. But men, uh, the onus mostly is on you guys, on us to be loving our wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We must avoid the danger of either dismissal or arrogance. Dismissing a passage or being arrogant enough to think that it doesn't apply to us. You know, I heard a guy preach on this passage as I was preparing because, as I said, this is a difficult passage to preach. And I wanted to make sure that, uh, that the hope of the gospel was very clear and understood. And so that it wasn't just hearing all the law, hear all the law and the rules, and then, all right, go out, sinners. That's not what I wanted to happen here because I don't think that's God's will to happen here, okay? But I heard a guy preach on this passage, and he said something, and I loved it. He said, I'm going to explain the text to you. So it's kind of what I did, right? And then I'm going to tell you something better. See, the law is important. We need to love the law. We need to obey the law. We, but, but we need grace more than that. We need grace. See, we need to live in the middle of the grace of the gospel because we, none of us, can fully uphold the law. We sin. That's why Jesus came and fulfilled the law on our behalf and our place because we couldn't. And he lived a perfect life, 100% man, 100% God, born of a virgin, grew up and lived fulfilling the law, never sinned, was perfect, was flawless. That doesn't mean we get a pass to let things go easily, but it means that Christ has made provision. I want to show you something that just popped in my head this morning, actually, and that's this. You know, Moses, when, when, when the Pharisees were questioning Jesus on this, he said, well, Mo, they said, well, Moses commanded divorce. And he said, no, Moses allowed it because of the hardness of your hearts. So God made provision there. He made provision for these women to get a certificate of divorce to be able to go out and, and legitimately be out there and uh, be able to remarry or whatever, right? Because of the hardness of the hearts of the people, he allowed it. He made provision. But here he is making provision on the cross for the hardness of our hearts. 
Because he knew our hard hearts and our desires and our, our ability to treat other poorly within marriages and to run out on each other was not going to get any better. And he made provision for it by dying on the cross in our place. You may be sitting there and you may, you may be someone who is divorced. You may know someone who's divorced. Most of us do. And most of us are related closely to someone. You may be uh, remarried after a divorce. You hear these words. You feel condemnation for your sin. But I want to tell you, I have good news for you. And that is, God starts right where you are. He starts where you are. Where you are right now. If it stings and you feel guilty or convicted, that's okay. But it's not forever. God meets you where you are and He offers His forgiveness. And you can live in that forgiveness. I want to show you from Scripture how Jesus treats people who are either divorced or who have committed adultery, because those are the two things we're talking about here. In John chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, Jesus has met a Samaritan woman at the well. Some of you are familiar with this story. But in verses 16 through 18, it accounts this. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. So what I want to point out here, number one, in the way he speaks to that woman, in, in this There are those people who would say, if you got a divorce, you're still married to that person. But Jesus here says, no, you've had five husbands. He he doesn't say you currently have five husbands. (laughs) Okay? And I wanna I wanna I wanna go forward to John chapter eight and and in verses two through eleven. I wanna cover one other interaction he had with someone who was caught in adultery. And I want to explain something. This passage, uh, some guys would kind of skip over this passage because it doesn't appear in some of the earliest manuscripts that we have. Um, but I, I don't. I preach it because I believe everything Jesus does is in complete uh, connection or uh, it, it's in agreement with the way Jesus operated in the rest of Scripture. But I just throw that out there as a, just, just a, a note for you. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and they continued to ask him, He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. 
go, and from now on, sin no more. We've got to begin seeing things the way God sees them. We've got to see sin the way God sees sin. Is that that nature upon us, that thing that, which separates us from God, that thing that is, is an actively, sin is actively at war with God. We've got to see it the way God sees it. But then we have to see Jesus for who he is. He tells this woman who had been caught in adultery. I've got a whole bunch of questions about how they caught her in adultery. Was this a trap? Were they trying to, you know, uh, all kinds of questions about this. And I've preached on this passage before, um, not in other places. But So I have lots of questions about that. But here's what I don't have a question about is whether or not Jesus was holding this against her. He says he doesn't condemn her. But then he adds to go and sin no more, right? So the idea is, yeah, you've sinned, you were caught in it. I'm not going to kill you. Repent. Go, don't do it anymore. That's the good news, that Jesus took the punishment for us. He intervened. That's the gospel, that he willingly gave his life on a cross for every sinful thing in our lives, for our very nature. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve to hear, yes, you are condemned you spend, and, and spend eternity in hell, but Jesus loved us. And fulfilling the plan of God, he died on the cross in our place, absorbing the wrath of God. All of that punishment, all of that judgment, all of that condemnation that was due me and was due you, he absorbed that in our place. And he offers us his righteousness in exchange if we will trust him and him alone for salvation. We've got to see things the way God looks at them. We have to understand this is the difference This is the good news. It's the difference between, um, oh man, I messed up. I hope dad doesn't find out. It's the difference between that and, oh, I messed up. I better call my dad. We need to call our dad. And I just want to prove this no condemnation thing. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So those who are in Christ Jesus, those who walk by the Spirit, guess what? You might be divorced. There's no condemnation because of the gospel. So run to him. Run to him and let him love you. Scripture tells us, blessed is he whose sin is forgiven. Take the law seriously. Live it seriously. But look like you are hilariously loved. Daniel Doriana writes this, his commentary on Matthew. The greatest source of healing in a marriage is the grace of God poured into our hearts. That grace has two facets. First, God is patient and faithful toward us despite our sins and flaws. As we behold our Lord and live in union with him, we participate more and more in his character. Then we grow into his patience and faithfulness. Second, 
God graciously forgives our sins and flaws. Drinking deep at the fountain of his mercy, we have mercy for others. Some days our spouse's failures loom large. Sometimes the virtues of a friendly and attractive person of the opposite sex loom even larger. Just as we cannot control our angry hearts, so we cannot repeal the heart's tendency to become discontent, to wish for a better spouse. What then? Remember God's grace and providence. The church is the bride of Christ, and we are hardly the perfect spouse to him. Yet God tells us, from Hosea 2, 19 and 20, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and will, and you will acknowledge the Lord. So God's faithfulness inspires us, but more than that, the Lord gives grace to forgive our sins and to make us new. And with this grace, He can build a strong marriage with all the faithfulness and contentment that two sinners can know. So this morning, what I hope you hear is I hope you hear the truth about divorce and remarriage. But I hope you hear the truth about God's love. I hope you hear the truth of the gospel. I hope you hear the truth that God is forgiving He is righteous and holy, but he's also loving and forgiving, which you can be at the same time. He can be at the same time. Those are not in conflict with one another. They work together. And that he offers forgiveness. That he offers that new start from where you're at now. See, here's the thing. You may have come in here in the situation that I described, one of those situations, but a lot of you came in here in some other situation. You're dealing with anger. It may be somebody at work. You're dealing with uh, maybe a grudge against somebody at church. Maybe you've got a problem with, you know, whatever else. Maybe you've got a drinking problem. I don't know what it is. And you've got something. I want to tell you that God offers you forgiveness and grace, and he wants to start right here today. All right? You may have gone through hell on earth. He wants to start today. So will you repent of your sin and trust the gospel and start with him today? Would you stand with me and pray? Heavenly Father, God, as we uh, come to this time of decision of of, uh, responding to you through worship and song and through uh, our hearts being turned to you, God, I pray that you would, if we've been convicted by anything in the message this morning in your word, I pray that you would not let it leave our minds or our hearts, but today before our head hits the pillow, we would be right with you and right with anyone in our lives that we need to make right with. I thank you for the good news of the gospel. God, there's such hard truth in scripture, but you have given such a soft landing place in you, in the gospel. Help us trust you more than the in the depth of our pain. God, help us believe the truth that no matter the depth of our sins, your mercy is more. And I thank you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. Before we, we're going to sing in just a minute, but I just want to say if anybody needs to talk, wants to have a conversation after, 
uh, I'll be out there and we can go talk or we can set up a time. You can come in later in the week and I'm happy to chat with you, pray with you. Um, or if you want to know more, you have more questions, you know, make sure to let me know those. And I'd love to be able to uh, give you counsel on those things. So let's worship.